Over the course of human history, there have been seasons of spiritual revival in which people have turned from themselves to the Lord. We understand that as repentance. They have turned from themselves to the Lord in dramatic and definite ways. In the scripture, there is record of revivals that occurred during the days of the good kings of Judah and during the apostles in the book of Acts. In modern history, there is record of local, week-long revivals at specific churches or Bible camps, as well as years-long revivals in cities or in countries. For example, it was in 1735 that Jonathan Edwards wrote of a spirit of revival that was sweeping across New England. We know it, of course, as the Great Awakening. He said this, he said, God has visited New England. My town seems to be so full of the presence of God. It was never so full of love nor of joy, and yet so full of distress. There are remarkable tokens of God's presence in almost every house. Jonathan Edwards went on to report of the salvations of moms and dads and children. Then he wrote the assembly, that is the the church meeting, was in general from time to time in tears while the word of God was being preached. Some with weeping and with sorrow and distress, others with joy and love, others with pity and concern for the souls of their neighbors. And as that great awakening persisted, Edwards wrote, it is astonishing to see the alteration that there is in some towns where before there was but little appearance of religion or anything but vice and vanity. Then on July 8th, of 1741, Jonathan Edwards preached his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, in which he described sinful man as hanging over the pit of hell, held above its fire by nothing more than the restraining hand of God. And if that sermon were to be preached to us today, it would offend our sensibilities. Of course, At the same time, God might use it to revive our hearts. But what you do not know is that Jonathan Edwards never finished that sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, because the impact of his preaching was so great that the people began crying and weeping and praying and repenting. He had to cut off his sermon and conclude early because the people were responding in the moment. They couldn't even wait for the proverbial invitation to be given at the end. And as history recounts, they were leaving the preaching and huddling up in small groups for prayer. If that were to occur among us today, we'd probably be critical of that disorderly response at that time. But many historians and many theologians have studied the characteristics of revival to identify the causes of revival what accompanies revival in an effort to duplicate revival. But by and large, I I think that's a fool's errand because revival is not something that can be manufactured by man. Some might contend if the right speaker and the, the right music with the right lighting at the right time and place, we could induce revival, but revival is something that happens when there is movement from God and repentance among people. And yet at the risk of oversimplification this morning, I propose this. It's printed for you there at the top of your notes. I propose that we can experience 
revival when we plead with God to invade our lives in a powerful way, cleanse our sin, and show us his mercy. And that is the prayer of Isaiah on behalf of God's people in Isaiah 64, what I am simply calling prayer for revival. Let me pause. Let's go to the Lord before we study the scripture. Oh God, I pray that you will revive us again. I pray that each soul will be rekindled with fire from above. I pray that you would invade our lives, that you would cleanse our sin, that you would show us your mercy. I pray, Lord, for these moments now as we study Psalm 64. I pray that your Holy Spirit might teach us. I pray that we might respond. I pray that we would be different because of this study. For I pray it in Jesus' name, amen. I trust you found your place in Isaiah 64. We know at this point in our year-long journey through the, the book of Isaiah, we know that Isaiah's ministry and message came to Judah at a time when God's people were divided. They were literally divided, the north and the south. It came to God's people when they were in a time of danger, literally, the Assyrians had conquered the northern kingdom. The Babylonians were threatening to overthrow and destroy the southern kingdom. Isaiah's message and ministry came at a time when God's people were desperate. They were literally desperate, looking for and longing for God to come down and meet with them in a special way. Look at Isaiah 64, verse number one. Isaiah frames this prayer for revival. He says, oh, that you would rend the heavens that you would come down, that the mountains might shake at your presence as fire burns brushwood, as fire causes water to boil. This is a physical and a visible event to make your name known to your adversaries that the nations may tremble at your presence. That is a physical and a visible response. When you did awesome things for which we did not look, they were unexpected. You came down. The mountains shook at your presence once upon a time. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, nor has the eye seen any God besides you who acts for the one who waits for him. There is nothing else like this in the history of mankind when God shows up and works. These verses are, number one in your notes, a prayer of supplication for God's presence. A prayer of supplication for God's presence. Now, let me break this down. First, we understand prayer, but what of supplication? Philippians 4, 6 says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Prayer is what we do before our meals. Prayer is what we do in these public services. Prayer is our general, regular expression of talking with the Lord. Supplication, on the other hand, supplication is what we do when there is a gun held to our head. Please, don't shoot. Please, let me live. Oh, God, save me now. That is supplication. And that is how verse number one begins. Oh, God, this is a desperate prayer. It's a supplication for God to rend the heavens, to rock the world with his presence. 
And that's the other part of Roman numeral number one that we may have missed in our text. It's a prayer of supplication for God's presence. Three times the theme of God's presence is repeated here in these verses. Look at the end of verse number one. The end of verse number one, that the mountains may shake at your presence. Look at the end of verse number two, that the nations may tremble at your presence. Again, at the end of verse number three, that the mountains, the mountains shook at your presence and this prayer or this plea of supplication is for God's presence to come down and shake us up. Have you ever prayed like that? Or is your prayer life reduced to the petty petitions of God help us to have a good day today? In Ray Ortland's commentary on Isaiah, of course, a resource that I've been using this year, he says this, and I've copied it for you there on the back of your notes. He says, American Christianity is drifting into historic inconsequentiality. And yet we seem to be satisfied with our condition. We feel little urgency and longing. I, I wrote in my notes there, supplication. There's little supplication, the desperate prayer. We're hardly aware of our mediocrity. We've lost the vision of the prophets and the apostles. Isaiah's prayer of supplication for God's presence to come is characterized in in these ways. First, it's letter A, a dramatic coming, a dramatic coming. Rend the heavens is dramatic. It's like the high school football team that runs out of the tunnel and onto the field through the paper poster. You've seen this done. And they explode and they burst onto the field to all of that excitement, a big grand entrance for everyone to see God tear through the skies and come is what Isaiah is asking for. That the mountains may shake. That's, that's pretty dramatic. An earthquake. And then there's the fire there. You see it all there in, in verse number one and, and two, fire that consumes the kindling wood and, and boils the water. And by the way, folks, someday the Lord will return in this way when Jesus comes again through the sky, plants his feet on the Mount of Olives. It will be split in two. All sorts of geological changes will take place. And in the end, God will destroy his enemies with fire. This is how Isaiah is praying. But the prayer isn't only for a dramatic coming, it's also, secondly, letter B, for a doxological response. And that's in verse two. The ultimate goal of God's presence invading our world, whether in the past or in the future, is to make God's name known to the nations so that all the world ultimately may praise him. And that doxological priority is threaded throughout all of the scripture. Everything is for the sake of his name. Creation is for the glory of God, Psalm 19. Our salvation or redemption is for the glory of God, Ephesians 1, to the praise of his glory. Whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we do all to the glory of God. And someday every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so Isaiah, on behalf of the people, is praying, God, come down in a dramatic way for a doxological response for your glory, and then let her see, for a distinct work. To do a distinct work, verses three and four again, when you did awesome things for which we did not look. These were unexpected things in the past. You came down, the mountains shook at your presence. Past tense, once upon a time. 
For since the beginning of the world, verse 4, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, nor has the eye seen any God besides you who acts for the one who waits for him. When did that happen in the past? We might say Mount Sinai. Remember God on Mount Sinai, but think about all that God did for Israel around that time. It began when God's presence appeared to Moses at the burning bush, and God introduced himself to to Moses as I am. Then God brought the 10 plagues upon Egypt. Then God delivered Israel through the Red Sea, and Moses said, stand still, wait, and see the salvation of the Lord. That was unexpected, that the Red Sea would would part. Then God led Israel through the wilderness in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And and then he fed them with manna. And and then he, he gave them water from the rocks. Nobody expected any of that. And then God's presence dwelt with his people in the holy place, in the tabernacle, in the and the temple, and folks, there was something unique, something distinct about the work of Yahweh in that day. Isaiah prayed for God to come and do that type of work again. How often do we pray and plead with God to do something great among us today? Oh God, come and save the lost. God, come and and turn the sinner to repentance. Restore that family member. God, come and change my heart to follow hard after yours. Or is it, God, help us to have a good day today? There's another point of prayer in Isaiah 64, and it is, it is this, number two, a prayer of confession over sin. Prayer of confession over sin, and I would point you to verse number five, as it says, you meet him who rejoices and does righteousness, who remembers you in your ways. Folks, God is willing, God is wanting to meet with us if this is true. Verse 5a, the problem is our sin gets in the way. In fact, our sin is separated between us and our God. We know from Isaiah 59, verse number one. Look at verse 5b. 64 verse 5, be you indeed are angry for we have sinned and in these ways we continue. The problem isn't that we sinned once upon a time, but it's that we continue to persist in our sin and we perpetuate our sin over and over again. Look at the end of verse number 5. We need to be saved. That ought to be our confession. Letter A, we are lost and we need to be saved from our sin. And folks, revival begins with confession of our condition. We are sinners who need to be saved. If you go back and you read the great sermons of the great preachers during the seasons of revival, either in ancient times or in modern America, there's a very clear message of man's sinfulness and need for salvation. We don't need country club Christianity in which everyone's felt needs are met, but rather we need to know that we are sinners in need of a savior. And if you have come to that awareness this morning, please seek me out after the service and say, Pastor Matt, I'm a sinner. I need a savior. That's where this revival begins. But then Isaiah doubles down on the idea. Look at verse six. But we are all like an unclean thing. All our our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. This is more of our condition. I'm calling it letter B. We are filthy and need to be cleansed. 
We are lost and need to be saved. We're filthy and need to be cleansed. And this imagery is more than dirty laundry. It's a reference to the physical impurity that rendered a woman ritually unclean and ineligible to approach God according to the Mosaic law. But we protest. We say, look at all the good that I've done. I'm not that bad. I'm actually pretty good. Well, no, you're not. Martin Luther said the most damnable and pernicious heresy that ever plagued the mind of man is that somehow he can make himself good enough to deserve to live forever with an all-holy God. But there's more. Again in verse six, verse six, the, the second part of verse number six, we all fade as a leaf. And our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. I'll I'll call it this, we're dying and we need to be revived. In fact, Ephesians 2 tells us that we aren't just dying, we're completely dead. We are completely dead in our trespasses and sins. And consequently, look at verse seven, verse seven, and there is no one who calls on your name who stirs himself up to take hold of you. Dead people can't do anything about their deadness. Certainly they can't lay hold or lay claim on God. There in verse seven, for you have hidden your face from us and have consumed us because of our iniquities. Letter D, we are helpless and we need to be sought. See, folks, we can't seek and find God apart from him coming to us. We can only love him because he first loved us and pursued us. So allow me to summarize this prayer for revival in Isaiah 64. First, God, please come down. Make your presence known among us in a powerful way, in a special way, like you did in the past for Israel. That's number one. Number two, God, please save us from our lost, sinful, dead, helpless condition. How about you this morning? I don't know where you're at this morning. However, in a crowd this size, I can only assume that there are some who need this salvation There are some who need this revival. Again, I encourage you to to speak with me after the service. Let me tell you the good news of Jesus Christ. But what's next? Verse eight. Verse eight, but now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay, you are our potter, and we are, we all, and all we are the work of your hand. Folks, this is is bowing to the sovereignty of God. God is God. And God can do and he will do what he chooses to do for he's the potter, we're the clay. And that imagery is common throughout all of the scripture. I think of, of Jeremiah 18. I think of the apostle Paul in Romans chapter nine. If we are ever gonna experience spiritual revival in our lives, we must submit to and surrender to what God determines to do in our lives, but this is our appeal now in verse number nine. Do not be furious, O Lord, nor remember iniquity forever. 
Indeed, please look. We are all your people. Your holy cities are a wilderness. Zion is a wilderness. Jerusalem is a desolation. Our holy and beautiful temple where our fathers praised you is burned up with fire and all our pleasant things are laid waste. If we could rewrite these verses in as a contemporary corporate prayer for us, we, we might say, Lord, your people have sinned and your church is in shambles. If we could rewrite these verses as a personal prayer for us today, we might say, Lord, I have sinned. My life is a mess. Verse number 12, will you restrain yourself Because of these things, O Lord, will you hold your peace and afflict us severely? There are two questions here in verse number 12. Keep your eyes there in verse 12 and and allow me to to explain. I think this first question, the first line of verse 12, if God will restrain himself from these things, what things? I think it's the devastating things that are named in verses nine through 11. The description of the destruction in verses nine through 11. I think that the question is asking if God would restrain himself from doing further acts of consequence to his people. This is an appeal for mercy. God, please do not inflict any more judgment upon us. Then look at the second question there in verse number 12. I, I think it's a similar question. If God will hold his peace and continue to afflict his people. If God is going to stand by and and let the suffering of sin continue. And so taken together, this is my understanding of of these questions in verse number 12. It's, It's number three, prayer of petition for God's mercy. God, please be merciful because we are hopeless apart from the mercy of God. We don't have a prayer in the vernacular. We don't have a prayer in the world if it is a prayer other than what the publican prayed in the temple. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, come down, rend the heavens. God, I am a sinner who is lost and filthy and dying and helpless. I need your mercy. As I've written there at the top of your your notes again, We can experience revival when we plead with God to invade our lives in a powerful way. Number one, cleanse our sin. Number two, and show his mercy. Number three. Folks, at this point, it might be appropriate for a public invitation for those that want this very thing to to come forward and to kneel at the front steps. The problem is there isn't room for all of us down front. I'd like to ask Brother Gary if you'd go to the piano and I'm gonna ask him just to play that first verse of our closing invitation hymn and I want you to take these moments personally, privately and to think on your condition And to pray, not a prayer, but a supplication for God to come, to invade your life, to forgive your sin, cleanse your sin, and show you his mercy. Then Pastor Dan, perhaps you'll come and lead us in the the singing of this hymn. Why don't you pray?